Y'all have a Bible, if you'd please turn back to Romans 8. We're going to talk again on prayer today. So we're looking at Romans 8, 15 to 17, and the title of the message is Praying as God's Sons, the Secret Chamber. So Romans chapter 8, beginning in verse 15, it's Paul writes, For you have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And Father, once again, we just ask that you'll graciously speak to our hearts. I ask you'll encourage us and put a fire of burning in our hearts, Lord, to spend time with you, to get alone and spend time with you and to intercede on behalf of others, our family, needs that we see, and to draw nigh to you that you can speak to us. And I thank you that you'll do that work in all of our hearts here today, Father, in Jesus' name. So we've been looking at the great doctrine of adoption. And so adoption, as I've said many times, but I'm going to keep saying it. You know, it's funny. Brother Hamilton said for 30 years some of the same things over and over and over. I mean, we could all repeat them. But I'll tell you what happens. You know, you can think, man, I've heard that a hundred times. Well, I'll tell you what happens, though. When I'd be in prison preaching at times, it wasn't into my notes or anything else, but I'd get on something, and something he said, it happened repeatedly. It would just be right there because that repetition, it does just become a part of you. So we've never heard a whole lot of teaching on adoption, so I'm not really apologizing, but I want to talk just briefly again about what adoption is, and what it means is that we have been brought into the family of God and have a new Father. We're no longer enemies with God Almighty, and that is a miraculous thing that's happened and a very gracious thing that happens that we should never get over. <laughs> we don't deserve it. It's the greatest privilege that there is in the Christian life. And, you know, J.I. Packer says this, and when you first read it and hear it, it, he says it's even greater than justification. Well, I mean, justification is the foundational truth, justification by faith. That is a great foundational truth. Our sins in the past are forgiven. We have an assurance of our future acceptance with God. It's secure. We're going to go to heaven. That's what justification tells us. A great truth, a foundational truth. Everything else that we have in the Christian life depends on that doctrine. But the even greater truth that's based on that, our justification, is that through our union with Christ, we are now counted, as I've said before, sons of God. Right? We're loved by the Father in the same way and we have to think about this, that he loved the Lord Jesus Christ. So when people adopt children, why do they do it? Why do people adopt children? So they do it to enable those children to experience the love that can only come from a secure home and parents that care. Because a child could be in an orphanage and they would receive enough just to exist. We've already talked about that. They can get food and clothes, shelter and a bed. But what is lacking from those children is what God, that need that he's put in every one of us. And that's that warm, loving, tender care that only comes from parents and a family. And that's what adoption is in the Bible. J.I. Packer says this, adoption is a family idea. 
listen to this, conceived in terms of love. That's how we experience God's love. In viewing God as Father, in adoption, God takes us into His family and fellowship. He establishes us as His children and heirs. And He says this, to be right with God, the judge, is a great thing. And that's what we get through justification. But to be loved and cared for by God the Father is a greater thing. It's a greater thing to know that you're loved and cared for by God the Father. And that's hard for us to believe a lot of times because the things we go through, what the devil tells us, just all kinds of things, right? We have to get back to verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation to those that are in Christ Jesus. And Charles Wesley, you know, it's funny. He wrote over 3,000 hymns. I think it's all boiled down to about 30 that the church knows. But he wrote an outstanding hymn that describes the wonder of adoption. And it goes like this. Where shall my wondering soul begin? He's like, I don't even know where to begin with what I see that God has done for me. How shall I all to heaven aspire? A slave redeemed from death and sin, a brand plucked from eternal fire. How shall I equal triumph's raise or sing my great deliverer's praise? Oh, how shall I the goodness tell, Father, which thou to me hast showed, that I, a child of wrath and hell, I should be called a child of God. That's a great hymn. Wesley wrote a lot of great hymns. And those guys had an experiential knowledge. This wasn't a, we take it by faith and hope one day we know. No, they had an experiential knowledge. John, Charles Wesley, George Whitfield, those men back there, they knew what it was to have that witness of the Spirit that we'll talk about, that they were truly God's children. Not wondering, not hoping. They knew it. And that's what we have here. Look in verse 16 that we read. God doesn't want us to be in the dark about his love for us. And that's why we have verse 16. It says the spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And that is one of the purposes that the Holy Spirit is given to us to reveal to us and assure us of our adoption into God's family. So you think about it. We said this before, too. God, our father, is the perfect father, unlike us. And as the perfect father, he's going to go out of his way to let his children know that they're secure members of his family. He'll give us that assurance. That's what he wants to do. I'm saying, do you men that have children in here or that have raised kids, do you not put your arm around your children at times and tell them you love them and tell them even you're proud of them? Things they've done. Do you not do that? You say, well, my dad never did that. Well, we should be doing that. We, we should have a new light on what it means to be a father by observing a heavenly father. We've got the scriptures to tell us what a father should be like. We should do that. It's part of what we want. But it says here, the spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. Would our heavenly father do less than we would do to our own children? I know you guys put your arm around your kids, tell you you love them, tell them you're proud of them, right? Would our father do less than that? Give your kids an assurance everything's okay. You're glad to have them in the house, right? 
He says, verse 16 is telling us there's two sources of that assurance that we're God's children. The first one is it's our spirit. And the second one is God's spirit. So our spirit tells us that we're children of God because we know we've repented, put our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. We love his word. We have fruit in our life, right? So we're self-conscious that there has been a change that takes place. We're not the same person we were. Hasn't that taken, I mean, that's the way it is when you're born again, right? You just realize there's a great change come over me. I'm not the person I used to be, as the old song goes, right? But that's not where it ends. Because this is what this verse is telling us. The witness of the Spirit is different than that. Different than that. It's God's Spirit directly witnessing, testifying to our spirit that we are God's children. I'm saying that is not something you take by faith. You may by faith be believing it's going to happen, but that is something that you actually experience, a feeling knowledge, as Packer says, right? Knowing that your faith, the hope of heaven, and the infinite sovereign love of God to you are all really real. It's a knowing that you have, right? So how do you describe that? I wouldn't know how to describe that to somebody, right? It's, it's something you really can't describe. But when you've experienced it, then you know what it is. You don't have to wonder, well, I don't know what he's talking about. No. If you've experienced it, you know what it is. And that would be my question. Have you experienced that witness of the Spirit in your life? That you are a child of God. And it's something I would say the Bible and Paul's assuming here that all Christians can and should experience this witness of the Spirit. So if you read much writings about the life of John Wesley, you know, you know there's things there with his, his doctrine and theology, but he was a godly man. And he was a man that knew the Lord, and he was definitely a regenerate man. A lot to learn. I had this stack of books along this line, all these old holiness Wesleyan teachings. And I'll tell you, you want to get convicted about your tongue? Those people would convict you to the core. Gossip, backbiting, it did not go on in those groups. They didn't allow that at all. Very convicting. There's a lot we can learn from them. But John Wesley made a big deal about having that assurance. You know why? Because he's going around preaching the gospel. He even made a missionary journey over to America. And it was on the trip back when he's with the Moravians on that boat. And they get in this severe storm. He is scared to death that this ship's going to break up. They knew it was all over. That ship was going to break up. That's the way it looked. And he looks over at the Moravians. And the Moravians are just at total peace. They're happy. He's like, what is the deal? And they're like, we've got the witness of the Spirit. We know where we're going. There's no problem with us. And John Wesley's like, he didn't have that. And he got it. It disturbed him. He's like, I ought to quit preaching. He went and talked to a, an old minister. He says, I don't feel like I should preach. And the old man says, you just preach on faith until you have it. And it happened to him one day. That witness came. He never lost it. And he would encourage his people to seek that assurance, that witness of the Spirit, and not rest until they had it. And here's what he said about it. He says, by the testimony or witness of the Spirit, John Wesley said, I mean an inward impression of the soul, whereby the Spirit of God immediately and directly witnesses to my spirit that I am a child of God, that Jesus has loved me and given himself for me that all my sins are blotted out and I, even I, am reconciled to God. Now, is that not what we have when we read what we just read? 
the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit. What is he bearing witness to? That we are the children of God. So Paul's writing that. He had never been to Rome when he wrote this letter to the Romans. It's not like he knew them. He just assumed that every Christian that was regenerated and had the Spirit of God would have this witness. He's assuming that. He's telling them that, right? You may be a child of God. That is not what your salvation is. It's the assurance of your salvation. So you may truly be a child of God. And you may be backslidden. You may be living in sin. You may not be living right. You're going to lose that witness. That doesn't mean you're lost. But that witness is going to be dulled. It's going to be almost to where you don't even recognize it. Because why is God going to give you that assurance that everything's okay when you're living in sin? And listen, the devil, just like in Pilgrim's Progress, he is out to steal your assurance. Because when you have that, you can walk through the fire. You can walk through the flood. You can walk through those trials knowing that my Heavenly Father is going to take care of me. And when you don't have that, it's tough, isn't it? It's tough going through life. So you're walking with the Lord, living with the conscience, as Paul said, void of offense. And we can do that towards God and towards man. That witness of the Spirit will be burning bright on the inside. And it's not something you're looking for as you're looking unto Jesus and living your life for him. It will be there. Amen. God will give it. There's these things you read in biographies, just certain things that stick out to you that you never forget. And I remember reading the biography of Hudson Taylor. And his first wife was dying in China when he was over there. And he wrote, he said, I hesitated to ask her if she was afraid to die. He didn't want to get her upset. He didn't want to disturb her assurance or relationship. And he finally went on and asked her that. Are you afraid to die? Oh, she didn't hesitate. She says, oh, no. She says, there has not been a cloud passed between me and my Savior all of these years. She had that witness burning bright. And that just spoke to me. I'm like, Wow. So she could joyfully sing the last line of another Charles Wesley hymn, which is entitled, Arise, My Soul, Arise. And it goes like this. My God is reconciled. His pardoning voice I hear. He owns me for his child. I can no longer fear. With confidence I now draw nigh. And Father, Abba, Father, cry. That's what she could say on her deathbed. And that's the beauty of the witness of the Spirit. It enables us to pray to God as our Father. And as we said last week, that broken relationship is restored. He is our Father. We can come to Him with our request in the humility and yet confidence of being His children. There should be a humility there and a respect for God. Not this flippant, I'm crossed my legs and yeah, well, you know, talking to, no, no. It's God Almighty, the consuming fire. That's who he is. But we can still have that confidence and respect, but we can have that confidence of a little child when we come to him, that he's delighted to hear our prayer. He owns me for his child. I can no longer fear. With confidence, I now draw nigh and father, Abba, father, cry. Cry to him just like the Lord Jesus Christ did when he was in the garden. It says that we can use that same expression he did. That's what Paul's telling us here. Cry out to him, 
Abba, Father. We're back on a speaking relationship with God Almighty that we had lost in the garden. The death of our Lord Jesus Christ is what's restored that. And now we begin our prayers, our Father. That's how we begin our prayer. And God loves to hear our prayers. Literally, he loves to hear our prayers. Proverbs 15.8 says this, the sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord, but the prayer of the upright is his delight. So that tells us he delights to hear his children pray. It pleases him is what that word means. It's his pleasure, his pleasure. You know, you go through Chick-fil-A anymore, and it doesn't matter what you ask a teenager that works there. Now, we're talking about a teenager. You could ask them to do anything, and they will always say, it's my pleasure. I'm like, I wish I believed you. <laughs> right. Teenagers telling you that, right? With God, it is his pleasure to hear and answer our prayers. He genuinely means that. That's what it's saying there. The prayers of the upright are his delight. And so think of that next time you get on your knees or however you pray, driving your car, riding a bike, walking, whatever you do. My prayer that I'm praying, I've got his word for it, his promise. It is my father's delight. It's his pleasure that I'm praying to. It pleases him to answer my prayer, to hear and answer it. So what I want to look at for the rest of the time here is about this secret chamber. Because as his sons and daughters, because he delights in our prayer, we need to know that God expects us to pray. And so if you would, turn to Matthew chapter 6. So one thing I mentioned one time, I don't know if people remember this or not, but that the Bible teaches that when we become adopted into God's family and that he is our father, it affects every aspect of our life from there on out. And to me, it's nowhere more clearly seen than in the sixth chapter of Matthew, because the entire chapter, if you look at it, gives us clear instruction on how we should live to please our heavenly father. Do you want to look up into heaven and to know that your heavenly father is pleased and giving you a loving nod of approval? Chapter six of the Sermon on the Mount gives us some clear guidance. And I'm saying if you're his child, that's the way children are. And it's funny, so I took my son to a basketball game and I'm up in the stands and he's down there playing, little John. He's constantly, he does something or something happens and he's looking up to me. And I'm giving him a thumbs up and a smile, you know, keep going. But he kept doing that. And finally, one time, because I said he needed to get on his man or something, I thought, I'm not saying any more instructions from the stand. But he's looking up at me, and he kept looking up, and I'm trying to give him the thumbs up and get back in the game because it's going the other direction, and they're throwing him the ball, and it hits him the foot. I'm like, hey, you got to pay attention. But the point is, that's the way kids are. They want their father's approval. And if we want that, chapter 6 tells us if we want the reward, the loving approval of our father, he talks about several things here. He talks about don't worry, just look to the Lord to supply your needs. He talks about giving alms. He talks about fasting. He's saying those are the things God expects us as his children to do. Those are the expectations he wants. So when you do your alms, when you fast, that's what pleases your father. He says, that's what I want you to do. Just don't do them so you're seen of men. 
My approval, God says, is what you should be after in doing these things, not men's approval. And beginning in verse 5, he says the same thing about prayer. And so notice in verse 5, he expects us, as I've already said, he expects us to pray. He says, and when you pray, not if. It's got to be when. He expects us to pray. So he has expectations of us expects us to pray. He takes it for granted that we will pray. It's a sign of new life that you're a Christian, a born again Christian. When you pray as God's child. And that has been the testimony of all the great saints down through the ages. And let me give you a few quotes here. Augustine said this, he that loves little prays little and he that loves much prays much. A great Puritan, Richard Hooker, said this, Prayer is the first thing wherewith a righteous life begins and the last wherewith it ends. A Christian's life will begin and end in prayer. Honestly, I've never heard of this man, but I like this quote. Pierre Lacombe, he says, He who has a pure heart will never cease to pray. And he who will be constant in prayer shall know what it is to have a pure heart. Now that is good. He who has a pure heart will never cease to pray. And he who will be constant in prayer shall know what it is to have a pure heart. You know why that is? Because when sin's bothering you, you tend to avoid God. That's basically what he's saying. Sin will keep you from the throne. It'll keep you from getting on your knees. So the person that has a pure heart, they'll be praying. And the person that's praying, they're going to have a pure heart. They'll maintain that. And John Bunyan, the great author of Pilgrim's Progress, I thought, man, this sounds kind of hardcore coming from him. But listen to what he said. He says, if you are not a praying person, you are not a Christian. We're saying God expects us to pray. Richard Baxter, another Puritan, said this, prayer is the breath of the new creature. And another man... (laughs) His name's George Herbert. I never heard of George Herbert. He writes poetry, and I hate poetry. I always hated poetry. But when I was in school, I took this class called Great Books. And one of the books I had to read was a whole book of poetry by this George Herbert. And it's difficult poetry to read. I'm telling you, once I got through it, I had a lot of respect, not so much for poetry, but for George Herbert. He wrote some really good things, and you get hold of his book of poetry, it's worth reading. But he said prayer is the soul's blood. It is. That's good. So here's the thing, though. As natural as prayer should be for the Christian, we all know how difficult it is, what, to start and to maintain a time of prayer, right? If you're human, you know what I'm talking about, or you've ever... You ever sat down to pray or knelt down to pray? Because the devil will do everything he can to keep us from prayer. Another great old saint, Andrew Bonar, said this. He said, just like the king of Syria commanded his captains, he said, don't fight with small or great. I just want you to only go after the king of Israel. He said, it's like the devil does that. Don't mess with anybody else. I want you to come after that person that is praying. Get him because he knows if he can stop that, he's won the day. And that's how we know our prayers are effective, don't we? By how much the devil is working to keep us from praying, right? And that's the way it is. Wicked spirits are out to try to distract us from praying. So you know how it is. You're at home. You've decided I'm going to set this time aside. A mother, 
and I'm going to pray. I'm going to go into the room, shut the door and pray. Your kids could care less about how you're doing or what you're doing until that happens. <laughs> then all of a sudden, hey, mom, just kind of wondering what you're doing. <laughs> you didn't care about that an hour ago, but not until I got ready to pray. That's the way it works, isn't it? Or you get down to pray and you think, wait a minute, this happens to me. Oh, I got this thing. If I don't write this down, I'll forget it. And it's probably true. But hey, all it is is these thoughts come that weren't there before. I wasn't thinking about that 10 minutes ago. All of a sudden now, the devil's trying to get you up to go over to your desk, write a note. Next day, it'll be something else, something else. It's hard to get quiet like Bevington did, didn't it? That's part of what it is, but that's part of what we have to do. And this isn't part of my sermon, but I do want to say this. This is something that we cannot take for granted, and that is we pray through the energy, power, and help of the Holy Spirit. And part of that is, I'm finding, we need to ask God, the Holy Spirit, to help me when I'm praying. Help me to concentrate. Bring to my mind. Anoint what I'm doing. I'm talking about in our private times of prayer. Anytime we're praying. And that's Ephesians chapter 2, I believe it is, that talks about that. And we'll talk about that, I think, later, next time. But that's what happens. The devil, I mean, there's some, got to be something burning on the stove. I know I'm smelling something just to get you up off your knees, right? What we want to say is those difficulties, but despite all those difficulties, as we said, God expects us to pray. We are to keep the prayer of incense, that incense of prayer burning continually. So if you would, turn back to Exodus 30. I think we'll look at this. So we're not under the law anymore, but there are principles. There are things that were done away in Christ, but that doesn't mean they're done away in principle. And so in Exodus chapter 30, beginning in verse 1 through verse 10, we see here something, and it says, And thou shalt make an altar to burn incense upon. Of shittim wood shalt thou make it. A cubit shall be the length thereof, and a cubit the breadth thereof. Four square shall it be, and two cubits shall be the height thereof, and the horns thereof shall be of the same. And thou shalt overlay it with pure gold, the top thereof, the sides thereof, round about, and the horns thereof. Thou shalt make unto it a crown of gold round about. And two golden rings... Shalt thou make to it under the crown of it by the two corners thereof upon the two sides of it shalt thou make it and they shall be for places for the staves to bear it withal. And thou shalt make the staves of shittim wood and overlay them with gold. In verse 6, thou shalt put it before the veil that is by the ark of the testimony. Where is it? Before the mercy seat that is over the testimony where I will meet with thee. And Aaron shall burn thereon sweet incense every morning when he dressed the lamps, and he shall burn incense upon it. And when Aaron lighteth the lamps at evening, he shall burn incense upon it. A perpetual incense before the Lord throughout your generations. You shall offer no strange incense thereon, nor burnt sacrifice, nor meat offering. Neither shall you pour drink offering thereon, and Aaron shall make an atonement upon the horns of it once in a year with the blood of that sin offering of atonements. Once in the year shall he make atonement upon it throughout your generations. It is most holy unto the Lord. Isn't it funny that the incense altar had to be, blood had to be applied once a year on that day of atonement because it is through the blood and by the spirit that we have access to the Father. Only by the blood of Christ. And we see that at there at the end. If they were required to burn incense continually before the mercy seat, 
in the morning and in the evening. The priests were required to do that, a perpetual incense before the Lord. What does incense represent? Before his mercy seat, he says, I will meet with you there. Revelation 5, 8 says, Now when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each having a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. So we're not under the law anymore. We don't have anybody putting incense, literal incense, but what do we have? Prayers. That's what that represents. Continually burning. God expects us to pray. David in Psalm 14, 1 said this, Lord, I cry out to you. Make haste to me. Give ear to my voice when I cry out to you. And he says, let my prayer be set before you as incense. Let my prayer be set before you as incense. So he expects us to pray. He expects us to pray continually. Morning and evening. You can't be legalistic about that. Let's just say he expects us to pray continually. Amen. We looked at a lot of that last week. But he not only expects us to pray, he expects us to have a secret place to pray. And look at back in Matthew 5, go back there. That's what he tells them. So verse 5 is saying he wants us to pray just not to be like the hypocrites. And when you pray, you shall not be as the hypocrites are. But verse 6, he's telling us where he expects us to pray. Verse 6, but thou, when you pray, this thing I expect you to do, he says, enter into thy closet. And when you have shut the door, pray to thy father, which is in secret. And thy father, which sees in secret, shall reward thee. Can we see there? He not only expects us to pray, but he expects us, our Father does, to have a place to go, a secret place. Now, for somebody like me, that's easy in a sense. I mean, I've got an office in my basement that I can shut that door and everybody else can be upstairs. I tell them to leave me alone. It's no problem. I'm saying for some people, that is no problem. But for others, it may not be that easy. You know, you may be living in a house and it's chaos. It's not a big house and you share... There's maybe two bedrooms and six of you there, and three of you have to share a bedroom. And it's just, there's nowhere there you can go find to get away. It just may not be that easy. Well, I would say this, take comfort, because the Lord Jesus Christ understands your situation. Because he lived in a small home, and when he grew up, we know that Jesus had at least nine people, maybe more, possibly, under the same roof he was under growing up. Right. And that home would have had a living room on one end, a workshop, and they would have had what was known as an inner chamber or a storage area, a small room where they would keep the supplies for that day. And they would have a little latch on the inside he probably put on there. That little cramped room is where he would have had to get away. Homes back in, that's what they would have. And that's probably why he brings that up. So it's not that we have to have a literal closet, but we have to have a place to get away, right? Later in his adult ministry, where would Jesus go? He was homeless. He was wandering around homeless, said he didn't have anywhere to lay his head. So he'd have to go up to the mountains to find a secluded spot. Or when he was in Jerusalem for the feast, where did he go? To the Mount of Olives, where those trees are. He would have been kneeling amongst those trees. That's where he would resort to, but he found a place he could go. 
Judas knew right where to find him. That's what it says in John 18. Oh, yeah, I'll take him there because he would go there many times with his disciples to pray. So we read Bevington. We know Bevington, he had those hollow logs or he'd get in a haystack, bury himself in a haystack. There's that book of that man that ran that orphanage. What was his last name? Klingberg. Was a George Mueller that lived in America. It's a great book. It's on the bookshelf back there. I'd recommend you read it. It's an excellent book. But that old guy, when he needed to seek the Lord, and he was just like Mueller, having to trust God for finances and all that to meet the needs of these orphans, he had this stump, wasn't it? He would go away and pray, and that's where he would get the mind of the Lord and seek the Lord. He had that place. John Wesley's mother had a house full of kids, constant commotion going on. And this is what she said. She said, I would throw my apron over my head, and that would be my closet. <laughs> it worked for her, right? <clears throat> so listen, I had a lot of things I wanted to say about things, and I want to spend the last part of my time. I read this. This just so impressed me, so had an effect on me. I hope it'll have the same effect on you. But I'd like to talk about the father of a great missionary. I don't know how many of you have ever heard of a man named John G. Patton. So he was a missionary to what was the New Hebrides Islands in the South Seas, all right? And they're a chain of islands. There's 80 islands, 450 miles long, a little ways off the coast of Australia. They weren't discovered until 1606. There was no Christian influence brought on those islands until the London Missionary Society sent two missionaries there in 1839. No Christian influence whatsoever. They decided to send two missionaries. I don't remember their names. Those men landed on the shore of one of those islands. They were dead within minutes and eaten because the inhabitants of those islands were cannibals that practiced witchcraft. So three years later, the London Missionary Society says, we're gonna send another team there, which they did. That team was driven off those islands in seven months, they were gone. Finally, one man got on one of those islands, managed to stay, the entire island was converted. John Patton and his wife, they came to those Hebrides Islands in 1858, he was 33 years old. You talk about severe hardships. His wife, they went over there, his wife was pregnant. She had a baby there. Her and the baby were dead within a short period of time. And he pressed on. You read this book, you'll understand why. You listen to everything else I'm gonna say, you'll understand why. But he fought sickness, and many times, you read the account, it is like reading some Hollywood movie, where it is like his life is in danger by these cannibals trying to kill him. One time, he goes into these villages, he doesn't know they're all smiling and acting friendly. He doesn't know anybody that he can trust. And this smiling guy says, well, get up in that tree and, and you'll be safe up there. And Patton doesn't know if he's being set up or not. He gets up in that tree and they're looking for him. They're wanting to kill him. And other people had to get off that island. He's there and he said, the arms of Jesus were with me on that, in that tree. Enveloping and he said, this, this is the most beautiful thing I ever experienced in my life. And down below, it's just nothing but death awaiting him. But that's what he experienced. So he gets there, and with his second wife, he goes back. And an entire island that he was on, Anawa, turned to the Lord Jesus Christ through him. Oh, you talk about courage. What caused him to be that way? What caused John Patton to be the missionary with the courage he had and the resolve he had? It was all began back with his father. 
in his prayer closet. So the Patton family had 11 children. John, the missionary, was the oldest, and they lived in Scotland. And here is how John Patton describes his father's prayer closet in his humble home. Listen to this. John Patton writes, our home consisted of a butt and a bin. I don't know what that is. It's the way the home was built. In a midroom or chamber called the closet. The closet was a very small apartment between the other two, having room only for a bed, a little table, a chair with a tiny window shedding a little light on the scene. This was the sanctuary of that cottage home. Thither daily and oftentimes a day, generally after each meal, listen, we saw our father retire and shut to the door. And we children got to understand by a sort of spiritual instinct, for the thing was too sacred to be talked about, that prayers were being poured out there for us as of old by the high priest within the veil in the most holy place. We occasionally heard the pathetic echoes of a trembling voice pleading as for life. And we learned to slip out and pass that door on tiptoe, not to disturb the holy conversation. The outside world might not know, but we knew whence came that happy light as of a newborn baby smile that was always dawning on my father's face. It was a reflection from the divine presence and the consciousness of which he lived. He said, never in the temple or cathedral, in mountain or in glen, can I hope to feel that the Lord God is more near more visibly walking and talking with men than under that humble cottage roof of thatch and oaken wattles. And here's the remarkable thing. You read that biography, if you don't get past the first 80 pages, it talks about his life growing up in his home with his dad. You don't need to read anything else. It'll edify you to the hilt. If you had to spend 30 bucks and only got 80 pages and the rest were all messed up, you, you got your money's worth. The remarkable thing about John Patton's father was he began practicing this, retiring to his prayer closet when he was 17 years of age. He was converted then, and he kept that up daily in his own home as a little boy all the way through his own family until his death at the age of 72. Now that was convicting to me, very convicting. And Patton wrote this about his father. He said on the last day of his life, the last day of his life, he joined in the reading of a psalm and had his prayers for his family and others in the morning and in the evening. And three of his kids were missionaries, missionary kids. And John Patton wrote this. He said, none of us, me and my brothers and sisters, can remember that any day ever passed unhallowed thus. No hurry for market, no rush to business, no arrival of friends or guests, no trouble or sorrow, no joy or excitement ever prevented at least our kneeling around the family altar while the high priest, his father, led our prayers to God and offered himself and his children there. We do devotions at our house, not nearly as regularly as I should, but there was a time my dad came to stay with us. And I'm saying, I'm ashamed when I read that. I thought about that. I thought, my dad's not going to like this. That we do. I should have done the devotions anyways. And I will next time. But praise God, he said, it didn't matter who was there. His dad, that was, was going to happen at his household. And listen to this. His father, Patton, wrote, he did not only influence his family, but those in the community. 
Listen to this. He says, I have heard, John Patton wrote, that in long after years, the worst woman in the village of Tortherwald, then leading an immoral life, but since changed by the grace of God, was known to declare that the only thing that kept her from despair and from the hell of suicide was when in the dark winter nights she crept up close underneath my father's window and heard him pleading in family worship that God would convert the sinner from the error of wicked ways and polish him as a jewel for the Redeemer's crown. This woman said this, I felt, she said, that I was a burden on that good man's heart, and I knew that God would not disappoint him. And that thought kept me out of hell and at last led me to the only Savior. What a testimony. What a testimony. And so we've read this in Matthew 6, 6. It says that if we are faithful to pray to our Father in secret, what does it say there? It says our prayers will not go unnoticed. It says if we pray to our Father in secret, what will He do? It says He will reward us. And that word for reward means to pay back or to recompense. It's the same word that's used in Romans 2, 6, who will render to every man according to his deeds. So God is going to pay back, recompense, render to every man according to his deeds. And you think about it. We owe him everything, don't we? Right? Because the only reason we can pray is because the Lord Jesus Christ died and made a way to the throne through his blood. We're dependent on God, the Holy Spirit, to make our prayers effectual. Everything depends on our praying, everything depends on what God has graciously given us. We have nothing, we're throwing nothing in this equation, right? Yet, it says when we go to our Father in secret prayer, that He rewards, recompense our efforts. <laughs> it's all of grace, as the book says, right? He is a rewarder of them that diligently seek Him. That's the promise in Hebrews 11.6. God is so gracious to us, right? And listen, this man, for all of those years, I don't know what 72 minus 17 is. Somebody quicker than math than me could figure that out. But for all those years, that man faithfully was on his knees three times a day. Three times a day. And you think God didn't reward him? I want to share this with you. As a young man, John Patton, he left his house to become a city missionary. Before he went over to the New Hebrides, he was a city missionary in Glasgow, which was a ways away from where they lived. And when he left, his mother and father never knew whether they would see their son again. And the walk from that little village to the train station, it was 40 miles they had to walk. And John's father walked with him for the first six miles. And here's how he describes it. He said, my dear father walked with me the first six miles of the way. His counsels and tears and heavenly conversation on that parting journey were, are fresh in my heart as if it had been but yesterday. And tears are on my cheeks as freely now as then whenever memory steals me away to the scene. For the last half mile or so, we walked on together in almost unbroken silence. My father, as was often his custom, carrying hat in hand while his long flowing yellow hair streamed like a girl's down his shoulders. His lips kept moving in silent prayers for me, and his tears fell fast when our eyes met each other in looks for which all speech was vain. 
We halted on reaching the appointed parting place. He grasped my hand firmly for a minute in silence and then solemnly and affectionately said, God bless you, my son. Your father's God prosper you and keep you from all evil. Unable to say more, his lips kept moving, kept moving in silent prayer. In tears, we embraced and parted. I ran off as fast as I could and went about to turn a corner in the road where I would lose sight of him. I looked back and saw him still standing with head uncovered where I had left him, gazing after me, waving my hat in adieu. I was round the corner and out of sight in an instant, but my heart was too full and sore to carry me further, so I darted into the side of the road and wept for a time. Then rising up cautiously, I climbed the dike to see if he still stood there where I had left him. And just at that moment, I caught a glimpse of him climbing the dike and looking out for me. He did not see me, and after he had gazed eagerly in my direction for a while, he got down, set his face towards home, and began to return, his head still uncovered, and his heart, I felt sure, still rising in prayers for me. I watched through blinding tears till his form faded from my gaze, and then hastening on my way, listen to this, I vowed deeply and often that by the help of God, to lie and act as never to grieve or dishonor such a father and mother as he had given me. The appearance of my father when we parted, his advice, prayers, and tears, the road, the dike, the climbing up on it, and the walking away head uncovered have often, often, he says, all through life risen visibly before my mind and do so now while I am writing as if it had been but an hour ago. In my earlier years, particularly when exposed to many temptations, his parting form rose before me as that of a guardian angel. It is no Phariseeism, but deep gratitude which makes me here testify that the memory of that scene not only helped, but by God's grace kept me pure from the prevailing sins. It also stimulated me in all my studies that I might not fall short of his hopes and in all my Christian duties that I might faithfully follow his shining example. And he did. What a testimony. I'm saying, do we think we're wasting our time when we're in our prayer room and our family knows it or anyone knows it? We're not doing that to impress anybody, are we? But to me, that is just such a convicting and yet encouraging example of a life. Live what we just read in Matthew 6, verses 5 to 6. So is secret prayer important? Do our secret prayers for our children? And how many in here are believing for their children? Our lost friends or relatives? Those secret prayers for coworkers? Or the places that we share the gospel? Do those secret prayers matter? James Patton, the dad, by his faithful time spent in his prayer closet, he not only affected his 11 children, three of which became missionaries. It affected through them an entire island of natives converted. It all began back in that man's prayers. They'd never heard of the Lord Jesus Christ. Every person saved. The dad wanted to be a minister. That was what was in his heart. And he realized circumstances weren't going to enable that to happen. And so when John, the one we've been talking about, was born, him and his wife dedicated him to be a missionary to the nations. And that's what he prayed for every day of that boy's life. 
And when he was going over to that New Hebrides, godly men were telling him, why are you going there? You're going to waste yourself. They're going to eat you. They're cannibals. They're going to eat you up. And his mom and dad encouraged him to go. Their oldest son that they loved. You saw how much he loved him. Oh, no, son, we want you to go there. God will bless you. He'll be with you. Your life won't be wasted. And it wasn't. John Patton lived to be 82 years old. He should have been dead way before then. And even beknownst to himself, that man being faithful in his closet, that wicked woman in that city was converted. He didn't even know it. Made it to heaven. I want this just to be an encouragement to us to find that secret place, to make that time where we can cry, as we've said, Abba, Father. And God is faithful. He will reward us. Amen? So we can be encouraged by examples of this man. We read of George Mueller, of Bevington, of those that got on their knees in secret and prayed and experienced revival. But especially we can be encouraged by the example of our Lord Jesus Christ. In Luke 5, 16, it says, despite all the crowds, and you talk about demands on your life. No one had demands placed on their life like our Lord Jesus Christ. We can't say we're too busy to pray. He's the one of all people that could have said that. You read Luke 5, going down to verse 16, the crowds are pressing around him. They want him. They want that healing touch. But yet it says he would often slip away to the wilderness and pray. Often slip away to the wilderness and pray. And if the sinless Son of God needed to do that, how much more us? Amen. That's what we need to do. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I just ask, Lord, that you'll speak to all of our hearts today in a deep way, that we will find that secret place to be with you and to commune with you and to pray and to intercede on behalf of others in secret, knowing, Lord, that you will reward us. You'll recompense us for something that you have graciously equipped us to do. And I just ask you'll make that a burden on all of our hearts today, Lord, especially in these end times. And praying for our loved ones, our children, for ourselves, and seeking your face, Lord, that you'll put that burden on our hearts and make it known to us that your expectation of us, your children, is that we will pray to you often and continually. And I thank you that you'll do that here for us today. And we pray that in Jesus' name.
I bow my knee Where your blood was shed for me There's no greater love than this You have overcome the grave Your glory fills the highest place What can separate me now? Stop.